Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, third chapter. Revelation chapter 3, we will conclude this last, the seventh church of Asia Minor. That said, we will probably have one or two weeks of review before we break into the next section. That is just so we recover everything we've learned so far and prepare ourselves for the next very large chunk of the book of Revelation. Today we will focus again on the church of Laodicea. Last time we were together, we saw that the church of Laodicea was a worthless church. Worthless. You say, well, where did that come from? I don't see the word worthless in the text. No, what you do see is that Christ said three times, you're not cold or hot. You're not cold or hot. You're not cold or hot. And hopefully you know why we have the picture on the back of the screen. Because cold and hot are useful. We see them all the time, every day. There is no faucet for lukewarm. You might say there's a spigot for the, the garden. Okay, I understand. But in general, we have cold lines and hot lines, right? Because those are of use. But the church of Laodicea was of no use. They were lukewarm. Because they were of no use, they were worthless to the Lord. They were of no use because... They thought they didn't need the Lord. They were self-sufficient. You say, well, where did that come from? It comes from their very words. Verse 17, where they said, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I need nothing. So that's what we did last time in studying this church of Laodicea. We saw that it was a worthless church, not cold or hot. Today, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider this church again, that it is a wretched church church, a wretched church, not realizing its true condition. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word again today. Father, thank you for giving us your word and working in your sovereign way to allow us to be here today to hear it, to, for some of us to grow up in a family that feared the Lord that brought us to church every single Sunday because that was the right and good thing to do. Therefore, we're here for others late, late in life. We turn to you by your grace. And Lord, it is only by an amazing miracle of amazing transformation of a a lifetime of sin that has now been and done away with, and folks who become children of God. Now they sit here today ready to hear from you. Father, whether it was a miracle years ago, young in a Christian family, or a recent mem- uh, miracle late in life, whatever, whatever it is, Lord, we are thankful for the way that you have brought us along so that we can be here today and hear your word. Help us to take advantage of it now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no surprise, but children are not born as fully functioning adults. Children don't work. Children don't cook. Children don't clean. Some of them can't even get around. Children are dependent. They need someone to do things for them. They need a parent to change a diaper perhaps a dozen times in a single day. But as we know, 
When a child finally gets to the point that he no longer needs diapers, that is a wonderful day. And as a child grows and matures, it is a good thing that he becomes independent, no longer dependent on his parents for this and that. That is a good thing. The Bible tells us that a child is to leave his father and mother and to cleave to his wife. So a child learning to take responsibility and becoming independent is a wonderful and good thing for civilization. But independence is not good for religion. That is, independence from God isn't good for religion. This church in Laodicea existed in a state of supposed independence. They said, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Self-sufficient. And this independent mentality was completely contrary to the reality. The reality is given to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus spoke to his disciples and said to them, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without him, you are neither cold nor hot. Nothing can be done for him without him. And it is no wonder then that Jesus Christ called this church in Laodicea wretched, wretched. Today we conclude our study on the church of Laodicea. Last time we focused on their works, which Christ found to be disgusting. Disgusting so much that he vomited them out. Today, let's consider the passage more broadly looking at the entire passage. So let's hear Christ's perspective in verses 14 to 18, and let's heed his prescription in verses 19 through 22. That'll be our hope today. Our first point of the morning is the fact that Christ wants our church to look to him for the proper assessment of ourselves. That's a mouthful, but we read in verses 14 and 17 that Christ revealed to the church in Laodicea its true condition. The passage begins by Christ describing himself, and then he moves to describe the church. So Christ, in verse 14, would teach us that our church has to trust his perspective. We should trust in his perspective. Christ asserts his own trustworthy witness to this church. Look at verse 14 with me. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You see there a threefold description of Jesus Christ. First, you see that Christ is the Amen. Now, what this means probably doesn't come to our minds very readily. We often encounter the word Amen at the end of prayer. And it seems to be at times just a closing, perfunctory word. You close a prayer with the word Amen. Or you may hear the word Amen in a worship service. In years gone by, that's the way a congregation responded when a song perhaps was sung. The people would say, Amen, after the song, which often seemed to mean something like, well, I enjoyed that, I like that. But actually, Amen is something different. Amen means true. Good cross-reference would be Isaiah 65, verse 16, where it uses this word. It's a Hebrew word. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of Amen. And it's translated in our Bibles, truth. 
So when Jesus said again and again in the Gospels, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say to you, he is saying, this is the truth. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is the amen, therefore he can be trusted. In addition to that, Jesus is the true witness. The witness is a person who gives a personal testimony of his account. And Jesus is going to testify, he's going to witness to the truth. Not only is he the amen, the truth, but he communicates the truth. And he makes known to us the will of God for our salvation and for our growth in grace. So we should trust him for that. He is the truth, he will communicate and testify that to us. And Jesus is thirdly the originator of the creation. As you look at your English translations, you'll notice that there's some differences here. Some say the beginning of creation, the, the capital beginning of creation, the originator of creation, the source of creation. And what these different translations are trying to point us towards is the fact we don't want heresy taught from this passage. Because some people believe that this passage teaches that Christ was the very first created being. He is the first one of the creation. He's the first created being. But that's not what this passage is teaching. And that's why the translations are trying to, to correct us and not allow us to come to that errant uh, understanding. This verse is teaching us that Christ is preeminent over creation, but he is also the source of all creation. That's why I say in, in part of the outline, he is the originator of the creation. When we think philosophically, that is to say he is the first cause of which all other things come from. There is no one who caused him. And that, that is one of the most striking uh, and most difficult philosophical things for us to understand. I was asked about that by one of your children just the other day. How, uh, who created God? Where did he come from? We always think there has to be a cause for something, but all the way back, he is the first cause. He is the beginning of creation. Consequently, being the beginning of creation, Jesus is God because he created all things. And we have to learn from that everything that he says, just as he said when he created all things, are so. God would say something, and it was created just so. And so it is today that Jesus says something, and it is exactly so. It is exactly trustworthy. The Bible opens demonstrating it's trustworthy, and Jesus now asserts his own trustworthy witness. That's why we should trust what he says. And that is in contrast to what this church said. We look at what the church said in verse 17. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. We've seen that we're supposed to trust Christ's perspective. From verse 17, we learn that we're supposed to distrust our own perspective. Look at Christ their misperception. Verse 17, for you say, this is their perception, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, there's the misperception, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their perception didn't match the reality. They were deceived. You say, why were they so deceived? Well, we know that people are deceived because of sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, we talk about this deceitfulness of sin. The context of that in Hebrews chapter 3 is the fact that God's people in a local church need to regularly meet together. You say, well, why? 
because so much of sin is not seen by ourselves. We don't recognize the sin in our lives, but when we get around other people, they recognize it. So it is a help to us that we get around God's people so that they can spot the sin and seek that we be rid of that sin. Because sin is deceiving. Beyond that, we should know from Scripture that riches are deceiving. Matthew 13 in the parables talks about the deceitfulness of riches. The whole point there being is that money has a way of making us think we don't have any needs. I have money. I have credit cards. What can't be solved with a credit card? And it's, it's this mentality of our day that is so different from the stories we read of Christians and biographies of years gone by. For example, they talk about getting sick. And they talk about it as just debilitating. And when they describe it, I think, well, why don't you just take a pill? Why don't you just get a shot? Or whatever remedy we have today for all those kind of things. Why don't you just go to the doctor? But they didn't have those medical advances that we have. They didn't have the means to secure them that we have today. What was a simple health issue today to them as we read their stories was just a fatal diagnosis. And as we read their testimonies, it is just a rebuke to us because when they, when they got sick like this, they gave themselves to meditation and prayer and they resolved themselves to the sovereign will of God. When we think, well, just go get some medicine. That's an easy fix. You don't have to worry and pray about that at all. Take a pill. But that is all to say that money has a way of blinding us to our situation. And it blinded the church in Laodicea. As we'll read a little bit later in the book of Revelation, Laodicea was not the only group that was blinded. We turn forward to Revelation chapter 18, verse 7, and we realize that Babylon, the wicked city, was also a group that was blinded. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to consider how similar the words of the church are to the words of the wicked city of Babylon that Jesus Christ would destroy one day. Revelation 18, verse 7, she glorified herself and lived in luxury, just like Laodicea. In her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. So just as luxury blinded Babylon, luxury was blinding the church in Laodicea so that they did not realize their pitiable, pitiable condition. We've already learned that this church was a worthless church because they're neither cold nor hot. They're good for nothing. But now we learn why they were wretched. They're wretched because they don't understand and realize their true spiritual condition. And Jesus is going to speak to them in truth and make them aware of their pitiful situation. Say, why is that a value? Well, perhaps we would think that a church full of God-fearing people, good people, they're going to be well aware of how they're doing. This church was not aware. 
say, why weren't they aware? Well, it seems that they solved all their problems with money instead of trusting the witness of Jesus Christ. There's the issue. We can solve it all with a plastic credit card. We don't need to trust God. And to that, we have the old adage, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord. Lean not upon your own understanding. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are Americans and we are rich. Say, prove it. We have multiple meals a day. We have and possess multiple outfits. We have multiple cars. We live in homes with multiple rooms. I just want you to take... Add up a couple things in the, in the moment. Just consider what you are wearing today and start adding things up. Say, I'm wearing a belt. Oh, it's 12 bucks. I'm wearing a ring. You know how much that costs? I have a tie. I have shoes. I have a blazer. I have a shirt. You know how much all this costs? Well, what all this costs could feed people around the world for months or perhaps a year. Just this. Not even talking about what I have in the closet or what I drove here or what I live in. We're Americans. We are rich. The simple truth is it is very, very, very common for people who are rich to not realize their true situation. They're deceived by their sin. What we have to learn from this church and from what Jesus says to them is that we actually need Jesus Christ to tell us our true situation if we're going to understand ourselves. We're not good at being self-aware. We need God's word. Without his true witness, we won't recognize our wretched condition. There's the point. What's good, good as we go on is Christ is not only going to pinpoint the need that we have, he's also going to supply the need that we have. We move to point two. We find this point in verse 18. In verse 18, we realize that Christ wants our church to be supplied by him. And Christ is going to counsel the church in Laodicea to get from him what they need. So let's look at verse 18 and see that Christ offers what the church lacks. 18 says, I counsel you to buy gold. Refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. You'll notice that the commodities here are gold, clothing, and salve. And they actually directly relate to the situation we find in verse 17. But why did Christ list these things? Gold, garments, you want to alliterate goo, salve. Why does he talk about those things specifically? Well, these are listed because of the historical background of the city of Laodicea. And in these things, we learn a lesson. The fact that Christ wants our church to know that other sources won't suffice. The church of Laodicea thought they were richly supplied. They were a rich city. They financed their own reconstruction after the earthquake that would destroy the city. They had money. Why did they need to buy gold? The city of Laodicea was a textile city. They were known for their black wool, which was used to make clothing. Why did they need to buy garments then? 
The city of Laodicea was a medical center. They had developed a salve to treat eye problems, and they were known for their medical advancements. So why would they need to buy salve? It's like someone coming to Waterville and then suggesting that we buy water. The assumption is we don't need to buy water. We're Waterville. In 3.18, Christ is carefully pinpointing the glories of Laodicea in order to make the point that they wouldn't be enough. It's not enough. What they had wasn't enough. And Jesus Christ does the exact same thing today. He says, you have money? It's not enough. You have commodities? They're not enough. You have solutions? They won't do. So why is Jesus listing these particular glories of Laodicea only to strike them out? And I believe it is because church folks often determine their usefulness by their abundant means. We often determine our usefulness by how much we have. We look at a Swiss army knife, for example. A Swiss army knife is much more than a knife. There's all kinds of things on there, pliers, screwdrivers, all kinds of things. And we think because of all that's here, this is incredibly useful. Well, this church in Laodicea thought they must be incredibly useful for God because they had so much. But is that really true? Let me make a very pointed application, and you can expand it as you reflect on the sermon later today. But let me apply this to the American church. Just think with me for a moment. Is the prayerless, non-evangelistic American church marvelously useful to Christ because of its missions budget? And even to take that current missions budget and to compare it to the church of the Depression, which gave far more than the American church of today gives despite we're not in a depression. To round things out, let's consider the fact that Christ has used the means of people to further the gospel. Christ does use what people have. You read through the Scriptures and we realize that churches met in homes. Those homes were owned by someone. Christ uses the means of his people for the advancement of the gospel. And obviously, I believe that God has sustained the gospel in many rural areas because of obedient, sacrificial giving. God does use means. But the question is, does Christ equate usefulness with means? Perhaps you might ask the question, if I don't have a lot, can God use me at all? Well, a letter ago to the church in Philadelphia, the small church, we learned from that church not to make the size of the congregation the measure of a church's success. And as we look at this letter to the church of Laodicea, we learn to not to make the amount of physical means the measure of the church's usefulness. Christ doesn't equate usefulness with our means. Laodicea had lots of means said they weren't useful a bit. Why? Well, they didn't depend on him. And Christ, in verse 18, wants our church to depend on him for what we need. 
Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold, white garments, and salve. Christ would supply the needs of this church of Laodicea. And his counsel is emphatic. He needs to be the supplier of the church. One of the results of living in the first world country is that we have options everywhere. Just think with me of all the brands of shoes that you could name. And we could be here for a long time. Just think with me for a moment of the variety of breads that you find on the shelf at the store. And then all the different brands of those varieties of bread at the store. One of the results of living in an affluent nation is the fact that we have options. Therefore, stores and companies advertise so that we'll choose their product. We'll shop at their store. This church in Laodicea found everything they need and what they had. And Christ is calling them, hey, I'll supply for you. Buy from me. Go to him if you're going to acquire what is of true value. If you're going to acquire gold, go to him. If you're going to acquire true virtue, white garments, the righteous deeds of the saints, go to him if you're going to acquire a true viewpoint, spiritual perception. If you're going to get sight from the salve that only he can give. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, the question we have before us is, is it could be boiled in a way down to this. Are we prone to bow our heads or to take out our wallets and to deal with our situations in life? Because Christ's counsel here is quite clear. He wants us to depend on him. Now, what is Laodicea going to do? Given that Christ has told them clearly about how they are, their condition, and he has told them what they ought to do. He's made it plain. Now he's going to tell them how to respond. We see this in the middle of verse 19. Christ speaks to them and says, Be zealous and repent. This is the fifth church that Christ has called on to repent. You say, well, what did they need to repent of? It's of their mentality that I need nothing. It's of their self-sufficiency. So Christ wants our church, reflecting on this point, Christ wants our church to repent of any self-sufficiency that may exist here because he called the church in Laodicea to change its mind about its condition. You say, well, what happens if we don't want to change? What happens if we hear what Christ says about our situation and we say, ah, I'm, kinda gonna, I'm not going to listen, kind of like Pharaoh? No, not for me. I'm just going to go on with the rest of my day and kind of forget what I read here. What's Christ going to do? You look at verse 19, we learn that Christ is going to discipline those who refuse. Christ promised to discipline the church in Laodicea. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This loving discipline is a principle of Scripture. Proverbs 3.12, we learned so long ago, the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. comes up again in Hebrews 12. So in love, God points out our sin, and then he straightens us out. And that whole process there is quite uncomfortable. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's true. 
But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And discipline can come directly from God, as was the case with the Israelites when God led them through the wilderness to do a work in them. Or God can work through indirect means, perhaps through the wounds of a friend who calls us back to the Lord. Either way, we discern what is wrong and we're motivated to change. And reflecting upon that, this kind of discipline is a sweet thing for those of us who have known God for a while. Because those of us who have known God for a while realize that there have been bad times. And God had to discipline us. And very graciously, God drew us back through his discipline. The point being, he didn't give up on us. He continued to love us. And so we see in this example of the church of Laodicea, God did not stop loving the lukewarm church of Laodicea. And he doesn't stop loving us either. He disciplines us so that we'll repent. But there is a better way than forcing God's fatherly hand. We find the better way in verse 20. Revelation 3.20, we find the better way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So Christ is promising to fellowship with those who accept. He calls them to change his mind and he promises to fellowship with those who accept. So he promised this to the church of Laodicea. The church that needed nothing was not enjoying fellowship with Christ because they didn't think it was really necessary. So Christ is pictured as being outside. But he would have fellowship with them. He would enjoy that with them if they would but open the door. So even a church like Laodicea, that's worthless, wretched, they can enjoy fellowship with God if if they will let him in. They need to welcome Christ. I reflected on this and just thought it is unique that churches often on their signs have something that talks about welcome. We welcome people here. I think the greater question is, is Jesus Christ welcomed at the church? The church may be welcoming to any group of people for particular reasons, but a more important question is, is Jesus Christ welcomed at the church? I would say that Christ is welcomed where he is sought in prayer and in biblical meditation. That's the church that welcomes Christ. So Christ really makes the, the decision for the church of Laodicea simple, but it's also serious. He says, be zealous. That means get serious about this. This is not a, not a trivial matter. Be zealous. It's simple. Repent. Change your mind about this. And you can go about that as a child of God in two different ways. You can choose option one and see his discipline because you're not ready yet and you need more persuasion. Or you can choose door number two, open the door and enjoy fellowship with him. And today, each one of God's children is making a choice to either see his discipline or to allow him in. To open the door.
And to encourage us to make the better choice, he's going to give us motivation in verses 21 through 22. Christ wants our church to be motivated to overcome any self-sufficiency in our life. And he calls the church in Laodicea to overcome their self-sufficiency. They're overcome just as he did, verse 21 teaches us. The one who conquers. And then he gives them a promise. But he compares their conquering to his own. The one who conquers as I also conquered. Christ is setting himself forward as the model of what it is to overcome. This book tells us how Christ will overcome all opposition to his reign. Chapter 19, verse 14. One day, full circle, his kingdom in heaven will come to earth and all will be put aside. But it also tells us that Christ has already overcome. We turn the page forward to chapter 5. And it says in verse 5, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Say, well, how is Christ already conquered? Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You see, Christ is the model because he models for us what obedience and submission to the will of God is. And even so, Christ has made God's will plain to the church of Laodicea. They must overcome their self-sufficiency and submission to God's will. And that's the same truth for us to take away. We have to overcome any of our self-sufficiency. Christ then promises the church to share in his reign, verse 21. He promised the church in Laodicea authority, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down on my father, but with my father on his throne. You see, to sit with someone in this capacity, in this place, is to reign with him. That's the Father's assignment to the Son, to reign. And Christ is extending the opportunity to his people. But the opportunity requires a change from being worthless and wretched. So Christ is he's holding this out to, to those who are useful servants now. Christ will place them in seats of authority and service one day. What that entails... All the ruling one day, I don't know what it all entails, but I know that you and I crave a better government because the people who rule today are just like us. They're selfish and sinful. But Jesus Christ will one day rule and reign in righteousness. That will be a good place to be, a good kingdom to be a member of. Till then, the church has to consider its own situation. The church of Laodicea had to look hard at his own situation. They had to look at their means. They looked at their means and thought they didn't need God. Perhaps they thought they were of great use to God even without God. But you cannot be of use to God without God. The church must not be independent of God. It is a wonderful thing for our kids to grow up, to become independent. When it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, it never outgrows its need for Christ because Christ comes to the church and says to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. Father, help us as we consider this passage to apply it to our hearts, to consider our propensities, and to have some honest conversations with you and to to set aside the things that um, set aside the things that we often think make us commendable to you 
and to see what is truly uh, praiseworthy in your sight. We pray that you'll give us spiritual insight and perception in this, and we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.